This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. I'd like to welcome Catherine Milkman to Knowledge at Wharton. She's a Wharton Professor of Operations, Information, and Decisions. And we'd like to discuss with her the recent winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics, Richard Thaler, who's sometimes referred to as the father of behavioral economics. Uh, actually, Katie, you had an interviewed Professor Thaler. He's a professor at the University of Chicago for Knowledge at Wharton back in early 2016 regarding his new book at the time called Misbehaving, the Making of Behavior, Behavioral Economics. So thanks for coming in and chatting with us today. My pleasure. Well, I, I would start out saying it must be an exciting time for behavioral economists such as yourself to see one of their leading lights recognized this way. Could you give us a brief sketch of, uh, of how behavioral economics could be thought of for, for an average person uh, and how it differs from mainstream Stream views of economics, and also why uh, Thaler was such a is such a leader in the field. Sure, absolutely. Standard economics makes assumptions about the rationality of all of us, and it essentially assumes that we all make decisions like perfect decision making machines, like Captain Spock from from Star Trek, who <laughs> can process information at the speed of light and crunch numbers come up with exactly the right solution. In reality, that's not the way humans make decisions. We often make mistakes. And Richard Thaler's major contribution to economics was to introduce a series of predictable ways that people make errors and make it acceptable to begin modeling those kinds of deviations to make for a richer and more accurate description of human behavior in the field of economics. So what would be a classic example of a, of a decision that an economist would expect someone to make rationally, but in fact they don't actually do it that way. Well, a great example from Richard's own work relates to self-control challenges, and he has talked about the cashew problem, or the challenge if you're at a dinner party of resisting the bowl of cashews that you know will spoil your dinner. An economist would, a traditional economist I should say, a traditional economist would expect that's not a challenge. No one should have any difficulty withstanding that temptation. They should know it'll spoil their dinner. We don't need the cashews. And he noted that, in fact, everyone struggles with this, and everyone breathes a sigh of relief when a host puts away that bowl of cashews so they're not reachable and they're not in front of everyone anymore. So that's a conundrum. It's, it seems small, but it actually highlights a major challenge for humans with self-control, which can perhaps explain the obesity epidemic and under-saving for retirement, uh, under-education among many groups. So the range of things that this simple observation can begin to shed light on is just extraordinary. And so, that's only one of his contributions. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's this idea that um, it sounds a little bit like, hey, human beings happen to be impulsive a lot of times, and that should be taken into account. They aren't sitting there with their calculators all the time figuring out a, an economic decision. Or a that's exactly financial right. decision. That's exactly the contribution mm -hmm. that Richard Thaler made to economics in a nutshell. That humans are not perfectly rational sitting with calculators. We have impulse control problems. We have social preferences. We care about what happens to other people instead of being entirely selfish. We uh, are limited in our rationality in a number of ways. And he's pointed that out over the last 50 years okay. uh, and highlighted opportunities for policymakers to improve the lives of 
of billions of people by taking these insights into account. So I can't help thinking that it's a little bit odd that um, that these things were kind of consigned to the to the corner for so long, and and now it's it's like they're out of the closet and people are, are talking about them more. I think that's right. At, at some level, it was it took a personality like Richard Thaler. He's a um, he's someone who likes to break the mold and misbehave, which is the title of his autobiography. Mm-hmm. Um, it took someone like that to point out the absurdity of the assumptions in a standard economic model and help change the assumptions so we could start doing the science better. And and that's the, those standard models, I mean, they worked really well a lot of the time, maybe even most of the time. It's just that when they, when they didn't work, it, it could be a major failing. Is that right? I think that's right. And, and it also meant there was an opportunity for improvement. So even if they were working fairly well much of the time, they weren't actually fully accurate. And so the more accurate we can make them, the more opportunity we have to make better policy and so on. Now, uh, let's talk about some of the practical applications of his ideas. I think he, if I'm not mistaken, he was uh, an advisor to, to the government at, at, at some point not that long ago. And I'm not quite sure what his contribution was there. Perhaps you could tell us. But but he has a lot of practical um ideas for how th- this his, his concepts can be put to use. That's right. So in 2008, along with Cass Sunstein, uh, he wrote a book called Nudge, which was a bestseller. And the book articulated an opportunity for governments by using behavioral economics. And, and the basic idea was that there are all these ways in which people make suboptimal choices. And governments have an opportunity to use their knowledge and insights about those errors to actually try to improve decision-making. Let me give you a really concrete example of of an idea from that book that I think is incredibly powerful. He points out that whenever we walk into a cafeteria, we're faced with a wide range of options about what to put in on our tray. Something comes first, something comes last, and the first thing we encounter is much more likely to be the thing we purchase and eat than the last thing, because we have an empty tray when we encounter that very first option. What this means is that whoever laid out the cafeteria was actually, whether or not they meant to, influencing our choices dramatically, depending on where they place certain foods. The first thing we encountered was much more likely to end up on our plate, as I just said, and therefore, whatever they placed first, whether it was broccoli or chocolate cake, was more likely to end up on our tray. And there's no such thing as neutral choice architecture. So he pointed out we should try to architect environments where people are making decisions in a way that, in his words, nudges us towards better choices. So why not put the broccoli first and the chocolate cake last in order to help people be healthier in a cafeteria? And he talks a lot about how to improve retirement savings outcomes using similar understandings of psychology. For instance, why not assume that people want a safer retirement and allow them to opt out rather than what was historically typically done when you signed up or started working at a new employer, which was to assume people didn't want to enroll unless they said, please sign me up for the retirement savings program. So with small changes to the places where we make choices, the environments where we make choices that don't restrict choice in any way, they simply use an understanding of psychology, we can have a a huge impact on human lives for the better. That's really interesting, this idea of, uh, so if you're starting a new job and it's time to sign up for the 401k retirement plan, that the default is that you are signed up unless you opt out. And so 
that kind of nudges people, as you said, in, into this behavior, which they will appreciate themselves down the road. Another one was, I thought was interesting was um, sort of along the same lines was that that, that you could sign up for uh, you're agreeing that when you get a raise in the future, like a, a, a bigger chunk of that would go into your retirement than, than would just be sort of the standard percentage based on what you had chosen before. And all of these things make, it turns out through the miracle of compounding interest that they, it, they these things can make a huge difference uh, when it does come time to retire. That's right. That's right. And um, you had specifically asked about how governments were using this. Um, I, I should have answered by also noting many folks in governments read the book Nudge, and there are now literally hundreds of offices in governments around the world that have developed what they lovingly refer to as nudge units, where they're trying to use insights from this field to try to improve outcomes for citizens. And we have one in the U.S. government. We have one um, that was founded, I believe, in 2015, if I'm getting my dates right. And before that, the very first nudge unit came in the U.K., under David Cameron, and it was literally referred to as the Nudge Unit. Now it's called the Behavioral Insights Team, and they actually have operations in the U.S. and in the U.K. They're helping many cities in the U.S. improve their outcomes for citizens. So he's just had an enormous impact, not only here but abroad. Uh, just as, a, as a, another lens for looking at his work, he won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work in behavioral economics. But uh, as we were talking earlier, you noted that he considers himself a behavioral scientist. Can you talk about the distinctions there? Sure, absolutely. I think one of the things that is important about Richard Thaler's work is that it bridges disciplines. And so while many economic Nobel Prizes are awarded to people who are truly only economists and only recognized in economics, uh, some go to people who've impacted a far wider range of fields, and this is one of those. So Richard Thaler often refers to himself not only as a behavioral economist, but as a behavioral scientist, because there's a community that includes many who aren't economists who are doing this work that is spurred by his ideas, his thinking about peculiarities of human behavior that aren't captured by economic science. So behavioral science is a broader term. It includes psychologists, many folks in business schools who don't even have uh, an identity as a psychologist or an economist. You can find the stray uh, neuroscientist and sociologist mm -hmm. who think of themselves as behavioral scientists as well. Uh, it's interesting, the, the, the word um, uh, behavioral in here and, and psychology. And I, I mean, in a way, I, I don't hear the word emotion when it seems like that's sort of like, that's sort of, that's part of it too. We talk about emotional intelligence and maybe, is, is that somehow connected to this idea? I mean, that might be a little far flung, but I'm just wondering because um, there, there is the, you know, there's, there's a, a whole field talk that talks about emotional intelligence. And it is this, it, it also seems to be an area that is, you know, slightly outside of the strictly rational, and it applies to behavior, and, and is talked about oftentimes in the work setting? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that uh, emotions specifically haven't been exactly the center of Richard's work, but at some level they are an underpinning of all of behavioral science and all of behavioral economics, because if you fundamentally ask where do these deviations from optimal decision-making come from, many are driven by emotions. So a lot of Richard's work looking at um, social preferences, for instance, the fact that we intrinsically seem to care about other people's outcomes and not only our own is fundamentally 
the result of emotion. We emotionally care about other people. We have an emotional reaction when we see something happening that we think is unfair to someone else. You can also think about um, an emotional reaction or a visceral reaction leading to impulse control problems in many situations. And his work on self-control then is all about emotions. So while he doesn't typically get recognized for being a scholar of emotions, at some level, everything we've learned about limited rationality is somehow connected to emotions, it seems. Uh, that's interesting. So um, tell me some of the ways that he has influenced many other researchers, including yourself, probably, or perhaps. Well, he opened up new fields of inquiry that weren't really in existence before he began mm -hmm. doing this work. So I personally study self-control and nudging, mm -hmm. and those are two things that were not really being studied by the community of behavioral scientists in, in nearly the same way, not, not with the same lens before he came along and um, made them central to behavioral economics and, and created this field, um, along with his predecessor, Danny Kahneman, who was also a, a Nobel laureate um, roughly 15 years ago, if I'm getting all my facts right. So um, he's just been instrumental in, in opening up doors for young scientists to think about things that previously weren't talked about by rigorous academics. And, and for you personally, what are some of the things that you're looking at that you might not have looked at if you haven't had that influence in your life? Well, one of my areas is looking at something I call the fresh start effect. So we've done research showing that at the beginning of new cycles in our lives, like the start of a new year would be a very obvious one to think about, but also the start of a new week, following birthdays. We have renewed self-control and extra motivation to pursue our goals. Um, and we find that people visit the gym at a higher rate at the beginning of these new cycles, for instance, and they're more likely to search for the term diet on Google at the start of these new cycles, and they're more likely to create goal contracts on goal-setting websites. And that draws directly on Richard Thaler's work pointing out that we don't treat time and money as if it is simply um, all the same and fungible. We actually use what he calls mental accounts. So we um, think of time as having these categories or money as having these categories. And we don't um, move money around between the categories or time around. So a new year is a new account. It's a new category. And we treat it differently. When we have that new year in my work, we show it it feels like a fresh start. We feel like all our failings from last year, that's a separate category. It's behind us. And um, Richard has used this mental accounting theory to explain lots of anomalies in the way people engage in, with their personal finances, uh, among other things. So, so that's an example of something that influenced my work. Interesting. I, re I did read something that noted, uh, for example, if, if you create something called a, a, a heating account in your personal budget, right, that you end up spending more on heating. How does that, how does that one influence the other? How does that work? Yeah, well, the idea is that we treat money as if it's labeled. So say you get a gift certificate, and this is a study I actually did in graduate school, okay. um, you get a gift certificate to use at the grocery store where you shop for groceries every week, say it's for $10. Well, you're just $10 richer overall in all of life, right? Because you were going to spend at least $10 at the grocery store next week anyway. You go there every week. Mm -hmm. But because you label money, instead of feeling like, oh, I have 10 extra dollars for whatever I want this week, I can go, you know, to the movies or out, 
out for lunch an extra time, we feel like that money is labeled for groceries, and we act richer in our grocery account. We actually go splurge and buy things like seafood that we wouldn't normally buy instead of just buying whatever extra thing would make us happier in life. So it's a labeling phenomenon. When money comes in in one place, we think of it as only usable in that one place, in spite of the fact that traditional economics would say we should recognize all money is totally fungible. It's just another $10 in your pocket. Might even buy some cashews in that supermarket, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask a question. One last question, which it's okay if you don't have an answer, but actually I have two questions. But what haven't I asked you about Richard Thaler that would be important for people to understand? I think one of the most amazing things about Richard is how well he writes and how simple his insights about human behavior are and, and easy for anyone to appreciate. He's actually the first scholar of behavioral economics who I read when I was a graduate student actually studying computer science and business. I picked up a wonderful collection of his essays um, in a book called The Winner's Curse about anomalies and the way that economic agents behave. And I was immediately captivated because it was so incredibly simple and elegant and funny and true. And I think many, many of um, the scholars who have been influenced by him wouldn't have been as influenced if it weren't for his incredible ability to communicate in that way. So for anyone listening and, and anyone thinking about being either a scholar or a communicator in other ways, it just emphasizes the importance of, of clear, simple writing and clear, simple examples to have a huge impact on the world. Is there any other kind of uh, theory or set of theories or ideas out there that's kind of emerging that people aren't thinking about, you know, that could be sort of parallel to behavioral economics that's, that probably will turn out to be important, but people just don't get it yet? Can you think of anything like that? Just we're always curious about this idea. Well, uh, one of... Richard Thaler's disciples, um, and his disciples are all incredibly impressive in their own light, uh, but one of them is a, a guy named Sendel Mullenathan. He's an economist at Harvard, and he thinks the next big thing is um, how machine learning will change social science. And I think he's on to something. I think that could be the next uh, revolution in, in the social sciences, is using machine learning to, to better predict everything. Okay, so we're heading to... A future of algorithms, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, well, certainly a future where algorithms do more to help social science. Okay, great. Thank you for uh, taking time today on short notice. I really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for running this. It's really sure. exciting stuff. Okay, great. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Mm-hmm.